Hello, you're listening to Second City Sermons, a ministry of Second City Church in Midtown Harrisburg. This fall, we're exploring the Old Testament book of Nehemiah and seeing what often happens when God's people seek to rebuild what is broken. It's a book of trial, triumphs, repair, repentance, and renewal. It's our hope that these sermons will draw you more into the life of following God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We'd love to meet you, and we hope you'll consider coming and joining with us each Sunday morning at 10 a.m. in the heart of Midtown Harrisburg. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. We hope you enjoyed this sermon. God bless. Lord, uh, thank you for your word, uh, sometimes large portions of which we're, we're not sure what to make of it, but we're so grateful for for your word to us um, that always speaks and always creates and that, that always changes. Lord, I pray that you would do that in us today as a body made up of many members, that you might shape us more into the loveliness of Christ. Uh, God, God, give us ears to hear and hearts to receive. Amen. Okay. Um, Y'all probably know that the Panama Canal is uh, a, a, an engineering wonder. It's 51 miles long. Of course, it allows ships to not make the crazy trek all the way around uh, South America. It allows you to avoid the hazardous Cape Horn, actually even worse, the Strait of Magellan. And even worse than that, the Arctic Archipelago, you know, that goes up over around Canada that has actually been traversed. Um, you might know this, that the French actually took on the task of building um, the Panama Canal on January 1st of 1881. It's not that the canal actually hadn't sort of been dreamed before that. It had. The, the dream of the canal actually had been going on for quite some time. But of course, people thought, how in the world are we going to build a 51-mile-long canal that connects the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans? And then came along Ferdinand de la Sopes, who successfully comp- completed the Suez Canal in 1869. And so the French were pretty convinced that they could accomplish, accomplish this. In fact, they kept boasting before they began it that it would come in under budget and ahead of time. Um, something that nobody should ever boast about because it never happens. Uh, they worked, the French worked on the, on the Panama Canal for eight years, and they spent a 240 or $234 million uh, of that time, actually, okay, at that value at that time. And 22,000 people died, um, almost exclusively from malaria and yellow fever. And you've probably not heard of the French Panama Canal because it was too much, and they actually gave up. And it wasn't actually until a little while longer uh, that the Americans took up the work on May 4th in 1904. And then it still wasn't open for another 10 years after the French had already spent eight years on it. Um, It was estimated, actually, I'll say this later too, but it was estimated that in today's dollars, the United States spent $8 billion building it. $8 billion building it. Okay, we're in this book of Nehemiah. And believe it or not, Nehemiah is a very old book, but it's actually the newest of the Old Testament historical books. It was written around uh, around 440 um, B.C. 
And I had mentioned last week that Nehemiah was the cupbearer of King Artaxerxes, who was uh, the emperor of all of Persia, really the great superpower of the day. He was sort of the right-hand person, had loads and loads of trust for the emperor of Persia. And he had his heart broken because of a report that came from him from Jerusalem, that Jerusalem was in ruins. Its walls were destroyed. And he sat and he wept over that and he prayed to the Lord and he sat in that for about four months. And then he acted. And when he acted, he went to the king, King Artaxerxes, and he said, King, this is what I want to do. And we saw last week that it seems as though at every stage he could have given all kinds of different reasons for not doing what he was called to do. And yet at each stage, God opened a way. He made a path that he might accomplish it. In fact, at the end of chapter 2, this is what we read. The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. And then you get to chapter 3, and my guess is even as you were listening to it, you're like, yeah, I think this is that chapter that I skipped over. Um, you know, uh, and let me say this, okay, there are actually other chapters in the book of Nehemiah that we are going to skim over, okay? Um, but I wanted you to hear the whole thing today. I want you to hear the whole thing for a number of reasons. But it's important that you hear now, just sort of at the outset, before I even get into all the different reasons why it was so important to listen to all this, that there is no spilled ink in the Bible. And let me just give you this basic idea. Okay, I mean, paper, I'm just going to recycle this at the end of today. It's just going to go, you know, in the recycling, done, blah, blah, blah. When I wrote my sermon, I guarantee I deleted probably thousands of words, right? It's just like, delete, you know, easy. Back then, to make a piece of paper to even write with meant that you had to get this specific read. It was called papyrus, which was actually the sort of name for paper up until about almost 800, 1,000 A.D., so about 3,000 B.C. up until almost 1,000 A.D. Most paper was written on uh, this, not, well, it's not paper, it's not wood. It's actually uh, taken from this papyrus reed that largely grew in Egypt, and they would very, very thinly take strips off of this and then lay them together and then press them and dry them out in the sun, and then, I mean, maybe one worked. This is not something that was remotely easy. So you should never think that something is just sort of like haphazardly put in the Bible. Oh, you know, I'll just mention this guy's name. I've got all this ink and paper lying around. Never happens. It never happens, okay? So that's important to remember. Um, there's no lost words in the Bible. But, of course, then you have to actually get to the second question, which is, then why? Why spend all this time listing these people and these places and all this stuff? What's going on here in this chapter? What's going on with all the deep details? Now, to get at that, I want you to think that um, as you go up into our sanctuary, not here in the worship, uh, in our social hall where we worship right now, but if you go up into our sanctuary, what you see is you, as you walk through the narthex is you see some paintings of some old guys. And those old guys were all pastors in this church. Um, but if, and, and, and that's, that's important that you remember them and you remember, oh man, this church has been around since 1864. There's been so many people that have devoted their lives uh, to the church's well-being. And that's good and you should remember that. You should think about that. But you know what you'll also notice in this church is as you look at windows, it'll say, oh, a, a gift from so-and-so. Um, or a gift from this Sunday school class. Or you can pick up things like this, which I'd invite you to do. It says, in memory of Sarah Alice Knoll by Mildred Dixon, 1955. 
Um, this table, I don't remember who gave it to, to us, but it was in 1912 that a family donated this table to be used as a communion table. Um, and you'll notice this sort of all over the all over this church. Um, there's actually a little book that I found that rec- that records for us the people that gave money so that our sanctuary could be built in 1905. Um, I did some calculations, and there was one gift that uh, in today's dollars is over three hundred thousand dollars. Somebody gave to have our sanctuary built. Of course, there's tons of other gifts that were given, but people's names were actually recorded. Because this church has never been a church just for the ministers. And no church works like that, right? You can't do anything if it's just that one dude that's got a painting up on the wall. In fact, everybody's got to be all in. And just like today, when churches don't exist with pastors doing it, but for people, that's the same thing that's going on in Nehemiah's day. Um, It was his broken heart that started the whole sort of course of events, right? Right. and it was his actually going before Artaxerxes and having the courage to do that and to take the place that he'd been given and to act out of that and to, to be bold and to, to believe that God would provide. Um, that was his job. And it was his job when he first got you know, to Jerusalem to spend those few days. You remember that? He, he kind of sat and he got a hold of himself and he walked around with his animal and he surveyed all of the work that had to be done. That's part of what he's doing. But there's no way that this wall is ever going to be built by Nehemiah, rebuilt by Nehemiah. This wall is two and a half miles long, okay? And it's eight to 20 feet wide. There's actually this broad section where it's believed that the, the, the wall was 20 feet wide. Um, just to give you a sense of that, that's here to there, to that wall, right? Sorry, thick, yes, yeah. Two, uh, two and a half miles long and up to 20 um, so um, there's, there's no question that there was just a ton, a ton of work that had to be done. But what we're hearing here is everyone's all in. Everyone is all in. There was a unified purpose, and yet there was also a diversified workforce, okay? So I want to talk uh, some about this idea of the unity that's happening here in this passage. And I think you kind of got this right away. If you're listening well, if you're listening, probably what was happening is you were sort of distracted by all the different names. Chad, you did an amazing job, but it's sort of distracting to, to hear all these names. But if you could get beyond that, one of the things you might have noticed is that the word repaired is mentioned 39 times. Repaired. This one. Repaired. This one. Repaired. This one. Repaired. It's everyone is sort of in this together. Think about this. Uh, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of... Meshazabel, repaired. Uziel, the son of Haraiah, goldsmiths, repaired. Hunan, the inhabitants of Zenoah, repaired. It just kept going, repaired, repaired, repaired. Um, but beyond this sort of repetition of this work of repairing this broken wall, there's something that you might not have noticed right away, but I'm gonna, hopefully this will help you understand how unified this is. There's a real order to what's happening. In fact, if, if you're able to sort of take a, a, a map of ancient Jerusalem with this chapter, what you will have noticed is that they started up here and they went counterclockwise all the way around the city. So Nehemiah has, give, has thought through it and thought, you know what, I want to not just sort of organize these people so that they know exactly what they're doing and where they are, but I want to communicate it in such a way that shows that there's a unity to what's taking place. 
um, Nehemiah was no doubt a great leader and that he could sort of mobilize people, right? He's like, at the end of chapter 2, he goes, we can do this because God's with us. But he's also a great leader because he knows how to organize the people that he's mobilized. Um, so we see these sort of, the, the unity here. Um, well, think of this. Okay, first we see that Eliashib, the high priest, um, he repairs, and it says, with his brothers, and they build up the sheep gate. And then verse 2, it says, the men of Jericho, next to them, Zachur, the son of Imri, the sons of Hassaniah built the fish gate. And if you were looking at that map, you'd go, oh, this gate, and then this gate. And it just kind of works its way around in this orderly way. So we see this unity in these kinds of things, right? There's a unity in terms of the purpose and what they're trying to accomplish, the work that's before them. But, you know, there's actually another detail, and I think maybe you noticed this, because Jed actually highlighted this for a little bit in the way that he read this. There's so much unity that the one sort of group that doesn't join in, you notice it. Uh, verse 5, it says this, And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. That's the only time. And somebody's called out for it because everybody else is like, yes, let's go. Um, Eugene Peterson, I hope you all sometimes read the message, his translation of the Bible. It's well worth your time. He translates that little passage like this. They refused to get their hands dirty with such work. And, um, well, you can sort of imagine it. They saw all these other people getting dirty, and it says that they were the nobles. And you sort of imagine them with their snoots in the air, if you know Dr. Seuss, you know. Um, their snoots are up in the air. Um, but I think also maybe it wasn't just that they were so snooty, but that, you know, maybe they actually could make excuses that we'd go, well, that kind of makes sense. They're like, you know, we, we're not really trained in that kind of work. That's not really our gifts. I don't know how to lay brick, and I don't know what you do with this kind of stuff. I mean, that's just not the job that sort of that I've been given in life. My life is to be a noble to organize people, to tell people what to do maybe. I'm not supposed to be getting my hands dirty, and I'm just not skilled in that way. I'm not a wall builder or a wall repairer. Blaise Pascal, maybe you read this earlier in the meditations as you came in, said this, the bias towards self is the beginning of all disorder. The bias towards self is the beginning of all disorder. And what seems clear, at least, is these guys were, at least on some level, sort of obsessed with themselves. They didn't want to get their hands dirty. Or they would say, I can do this, and I can't do that. But I want you to notice something else. So the Tekoites are, he are here mentioned at the beginning in, in verse 5 here, and it says their nobles wouldn't stoop in this kind of way. But the Tekoites are actually mentioned again, which again is supposed to highlight for you that everybody is all in except the, the nobles. So if you actually look down with me all the way to verse 27, listen to what this says. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. So the Tekoites are like, well, 
We got done with this section. There's some more work to be done. Put us in, coach. We're not going to be warming any benches at all. Get us back in the game. Maybe our nobles will do that, but we want in. What I'm suggesting to you here is that there just seems to be this massive unity in the work that's supposed to be done. And I think it's being communicated to us in quite a few different ways. So that actually, once you leave it, you're like, well, obviously this is repairing and everybody's doing it. And even everybody's names are mentioned specifically because they're the sixth son of so-and-so. And they're this son and that son. There's all this detail that's going together to say that there's unity in this work. Something you've probably heard, I hope you've heard a lot, is that Second City Church is a community that exists to worship the triune God and to celebrate in word and deed the gospel of Jesus. So when we think about, well, what should we do? What endeavors should we take on? One of the things that we need to think is, well, does it fit that? Are we unified in that? And if we're unified in that, then everything else is sort of, okay, how does it play off of this? The worship of the triune God and the celebration in word and deed of the gospel of Jesus. Which is to say, we receive God's grace and we extend God's grace. And all hands are in deck to accomplish this work. It's everyone contributing to it. Everyone contributing to it. So there's a great unity in this passage. Um, we notice this through, of course, the repetition of repair. But I think there's lots of not-so-overt details that hopefully you've seen. You go, yeah, this is incredible. Um, but I think actually one of the things, and again, I'm going to help, hopefully help you see this clearly. I think one of the really cool things about this passage is that though there's a unity of work, you actually find massive diversity in who's accomplishing this work. Okay. There's a lot of different gifts and there's different callings that are coming together to accomplish this wall repairing, wall building. From the very beginning, it's mentioned Eliashib. And it's mentioned that he's the high priest and that there are his brothers there with him. And I love this because um, the high priest is not just like, hey, I'm just going to hang out in the church building or in the temple and offer sacrifices. Or, hey, if you want to come find me, I'll be in my office. I'll be reading and praying all the time. And if you want to meet with me, you can do that. Um, but instead, the priests are saying, you know, throw me in where I'm needed. Let me, let me learn how to take some rocks and chisel them and take some mortar and place it down and and rebuild this section of the wall. Um, the priests are in there. Um, and but but what, what's what you should notice there is that they actually ha- they're they're trained in a certain sort of uh, guild, if you will, there's certain certain tasks that they're they're given to do, and yet those tasks and those gifts are now sort of worked towards this unifying purpose. If you look down at verse eight, you'll see um, a different kind of skill, a different kind of guild. Verse 8 says this, next to them, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, this is a tricky passage, Harhiah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. That's the wall that was really, really thick. Um, so goldsmiths, you know, goldsmiths might have had some skill that really transferred to wall repairing. Um but think about this also. A goldsmith would have been really gifted at the real details, sort of the fine-tuning of things, really careful with the fingers and the hands. Um, 
I mean, think about this. I remember uh, working in college, um, my second summer of college, for a construction company, and I was largely framing walls inside of a large, large building. And I got a huge framing hammer, you know, one that has a waffle pattern on the front, and a little magnet so you could stick a framing nail or like this big, and just wham, and wham, wham, wham. And you could just smash them in there, and if you didn't hit the nail all the time, it really didn't matter that much because there's going to be sheathing on top of it, blah, 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 blah. Well, if you've ever seen a finished carpenter do their work, they use tiny, tiny, tiny nails. Like everything is exact, perfectly, perfectly cut. And if you've seen somebody actually do jewelry, it's even more exact, okay? So you might first think like, oh, here's a guild, a goldsmith, somebody that's been trained in construction and things like that. Okay, wrong. It's totally different than being a priest, but it's also totally different than building a wall. And yet this person is saying, I'm going to come, I'm going to show up. And then uh, a perfumer. Let's just all acknowledge there's no overlap. There's none. Of this, there's no transferable skills with a perfumer and building a wall. And then you have government workers mentioned. Actually, a lot. There's a lot of government workers, which is perfect for Harrisburg, right? You people who work in government. This text is for you. Some of your skills are transferable and some of them aren't, but you're welcome. So there's priests, there's city guards, there's union workers, there's guild workers, there's public servants. Um, there's neighbors and there's strangers, and they're all jumping in to accomplish the work together. There's a massively diverse group of people here. Um, but again, we don't just see this through the gifts uh, and the callings and the skills that these people have. Um, we also see this in part from the different backgrounds from which they come. Listen to some of the verses. Verse 2 says this, And next to him the men of Jericho built. That's not Jerusalem. This isn't even their town. But they're like, you know, we'll make the 20-mile or so journey, and we're going to help those people out. There's probably nothing really in it for them apart from being Jewish people who generally care about the land, but they're actually making the journey to go do the work. Of course, verse 5, we mentioned the Tekoites. Verse 7, it says, And next to them repaired Malatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jaden, the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. People are coming even from a different province to this place. Uh, verse 13 says this, Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired. Okay, another town, one that's not as well known as Jericho. People from another place, and they're coming, and they're repairing. Verse 22, um, it says, After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area repaired. And so there were the priests of uh, Hannah. Who's the priest that's first mentioned? Eliashib, and it's his brothers. But Eliashib, we actually hear in this passage, lives there in Jerusalem. But there's priests that live elsewhere, and they're coming, and they're bringing their skills, and they're bringing their lack of skill, and they're bringing it to Jerusalem and helping. And again, I want you to just think about this, okay? The Lord has brought us together as a church. And the fact is that we are from different places. I'm, I grew up on Vashon Island in Washington, and none of you except for my wife and family have probably ever been there. Uh, it's a long, long ways away. And some of you are from all kinds of different places around Pennsylvania. But the fact of the matter is that every single one of us has a completely different background. Even if you're, even if you're raised in the same family, your experience in life is completely different. You've been shaped in different ways by different people, by different histories. And God has brought you all together here now to lend your hand to the work of this church. And that's part of the beauty of this people. 
Massively different people from different backgrounds being brought together to work together. Um, love just thinking about um, receiving new members and how God has gifted each one of you uniquely and how your, your stories are completely unique to yourself. God working in you to bring you here at this time now to be part of this community. It's a lovely, lovely thing. Okay, so, so what I'm hoping that you're not just hearing in this passage, right, is like, so-and-so, connected to so-and-so, doing this and doing this and this. And, like, I think that's the temptation when we come to these texts is we go, oh, this is a weird word, and they're just repairing again. But actually, when you start to dive in, you go, wow, the Bible, there's no lost words. And actually, what we find is something remarkably lovely, that there's this unified work, but this massively diversified group of people. And what you find, actually, also, when you look at this so-and-so and then so-and-so, is at times it looks like a sort of a traditional family tree, right? Blah, 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 the son of blah, 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 that kind of thing. But, you know, we actually, if you start to dig into it, it actually highlights the differences all the more. Um, look down at verse 12. Maybe you notice this. Verse 12 says this. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Okay, did y'all notice that? That's a really, really important thing to notice. Women are here present. And they're repairing, right? They're getting their hands dirty, unlike the nobles. This is not just something for dudes. And the fact of the matter is, is that the church has largely been populated by women for its entire life. That is just simply fact. It has always been the case that the church has been actually disproportionately populated by women. Let me give you a couple examples of this. Some of you know of uh, Celsus. He was a detractor from the early church. Uh, in, this, in the late 2nd century, early 3rd century, he actually um, insultingly said that the church was overpopulated by the silly and the mean, the stupid, with women and children. That's one of the reasons why he didn't want to be in the church, because there were too many women in the church. Seriously. Um, um, but, of course, we actually know, even from the time of the writing of, of the text of Holy Scripture, that women were not only in the church, but they were actually some of the most well-to-do and most well-connected and most able. Think with, uh, with me of just last fall when we considered uh, Lydia so often in the book of Philippi and how much she contributed to the well-being of that church. She had a massive influence there. Um, Augustine, writing in the 4th century, said that, quote, any old Christian woman, was better educated than most philosophers of his day. And that's not that he was actually just trying to give a defense of Christianity, but it was actually true. This is kind of wild. But um, so many of the women of the early church were the most um, sort of from the highest sort of strata of society, the most educated, the most well-to-do in the early church, that um, Calistus, Calistus, who was the bishop of Rome in the, in the 220s, petitioned the Roman government to change the laws because at the time, if you were of certain uh, social standing, you could not marry people of lower social standings. And there were so many well-to-do, well-educated women in the church, and there were not very many well-educated, well-to-do men in the church. And so the Bishop of Rome actually petitioned to have that change so that Christian women could marry people of not the same social standing. 
Isn't that remarkable? Okay. There are women here, and they're doing it. They're, bi- they're rebuilding. Another really beautiful little point that, that um, James Boyce, some of you all know him, he used to be the pastor of at 10th in Philly, points out is that there's also bachelors here, um, single guys. Verse 23 says this, After them, Benjamin and Hassab repaired opposite their house. Part of the really lovely thing about the church is that you, uh, the Bible doesn't actually talk about the church as the nuclear family, but instead as the household of God. And we tend to think, well, you know, our households are contained of a mother and a father and some kids, and that's sort of contained. Nobody lived like that largely in the ancient world. They lived with their grandparents. They lived with their grandchildren and all these kinds of things, and it was a household. And sometimes they had single people that were living with them or maybe a group of people, single people all lived together. And what you find in the Bible is all of these stages of life being completely affirmed and saying you have gifts that are used in service to this community. And your name needs to be written down there right next to the normal sort of families that say sons of this and sons of that and sons of that. You single people deeply, deeply matter to the well-being and the life and the prosperity of the church of God. The body does not consist of one member but of many. And the church is not a bag full of eyes, right? You cannot have a bunch of people that look and sound exactly the same. You're not going to get anywhere according to Holy Scripture. So we need to work together. Let me say this. Some of you need to jump into life in the church. You know, uh, one of the things we do not see in this is that there's a place for sort of bench warming, okay? And now, let me say this. This is important. There is a time when people are truly, truly burnt out, and they actually need to take a pause. That is the rare exception in the church. Most of the time, what you need to be saying is, where does something need to be done? Do my gifts fit? And you know what? Actually, my gifts don't fit. I'm a perfumer, but that work needs to get done, and I can do it. And you just need to jump in and get your hands dirty. So that's something we need to learn. The other thing I think we need to learn is that we need to celebrate the work that, one, that, that we do together. Um, there's a great diversity in the work, and, the, and that diversity needs to be celebrated, which is to say I think what we actually need to do is celebrate that it's done by specific people too. It may be silly to go and look up in our sanctuary and go, man, look at all these names of people we don't know. But we should actually t- take great delight in this fact that these people were willing to give some of their resources to give us a space to worship in. That's a gift that has been given to us, and we ought to take delight in it. Or I think what we can do is say this. Thank you, Bruce and Dan and Gordon, for teaching Sunday school. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Melissa and Cynthia, for leading the book study that's happening right now. Amen? Thank you, Donna. For all of her years of service on the benevolence team. And frankly, coming early and making coffee and just setting things up. Right? We ought to be able to actually say, you know what? This person matters immensely to this community. And without this person's presence among us, we would actually be a different body, wouldn't we? We would. Um, okay, let me get back to the, pa- the Panama Canal and I'll just kind of wrap this around. So the Panama Canal was, it was and is this absolute marvel. I mentioned that it, it took 10 years, American years, on top of the eight French years to build. Um, 
And really, it sort of transforms sort of navigation, right? I mean, think of all, of course, of the freight, you know, uh, the, the huge cargo ships that go through that or, you know, all these boats that, that use that. It, it completely changed a lot of transportation. And it cost a ton of money. Eight, I mean, $8 billion uh, in today's uh, money. Think of all the steam shovels and the train tracks, all the dirt that had to be removed to make that happen. Um, and, you know, it, actually, largely, people still thought it wouldn't happen, even when the U.S. was doing it and spending all these resources to have it done. And part of why that was the case was because so many people were dying. I mentioned that there were 22,000 people that died, the French people that died. There were tons of Americans that were dying, too, and for the same reasons, malaria and yellow fever. And, of course, there was all kinds of questions about why this was happening. But there was a chief sanitation officer, William Gorgas, he advanced the idea that it was mosquitoes. And this is kind of wild because most people were like, no, it's not the mosquitoes. In fact, it's these other bugs that live on the ground that are crawling up. And so it is known that a lot of the cots that the people would use, they would take little tin cans and they would put some water in those tin cans and then put the, like, the post of the, the cot in the water. So if the, crub, the, the, the bug crawled up, it would just die in the water. But what does that do for mosquitoes? It just makes them thrive, right? Um, well, anyway, this guy, Gorgas, he said, no, it's the, he was totally convinced it was the mosquitoes that are killing everyone. And he sort of systematically set out to kill all the mosquitoes. It actually cost the, the U.S. $20 million just to kill the mosquitoes. Um, and it took them actually all of those 10 years to consistently work on killing all these mosquitoes. They sprayed everywhere. They dumped out all of this water. But, of course, it's in the middle of the jungle at times. Um, so it year, took years and years, and it took somebody sticking with it and, and just devoting themselves to this work. Now, here's where I'm going with that. Did anybody know that guy's name before today? I didn't really know this either until I was, like, working on this sermon. So. Um, and he did this massive thing that without his work, actually, would not have been accomplished. But everybody knows about the Panama City, you know, not Panama City, the Panama Canal. Everybody knows about it. Now, okay, let me, let me read this passage from Ephesians chapter 4. This is what it says. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I wanted to read this because as wonderful as it is to hear that these individual names, and as good as it is for, I think, all of us to be reminded of the importance of each one of your gifts, the only person mentioned in this passage, when you talk about the body and all these other things, the only person mentioned is Jesus. The only person mentioned is Jesus. Because the whole work that is getting done, and you, you remember this from the end of chapter 2, is that if God is in it, it'll happen. Friends, our job as a church is to worship the Lord and to celebrate the gospel of Jesus. But he will do that 
in and through the diversity of the body as we work together for the unity of this work. Let me pray. I've given a long sermon. Lord, thank you uh, for this text in Nehemiah, this beautiful passage that mentions uh, these brothers and these sisters, uh, these people that came from far and near, these people that had the gifts that suited the work, and these people that didn't, that devoted themselves to rebuilding this wall long ago and serving you and faithfully. Lord, we pray that we would walk in their ways. Equip us as a body to love and serve one another and to love and serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Second City Sermons podcast. We hope this sermon has encouraged you to worship God and to celebrate the gospel of Jesus. Please consider subscribing to this podcast and joining us in person each Sunday at 10 a.m. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks again for listening. God bless.